Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we begin, a quick content warning. As you might have guessed from the title, this episode is difficult in places, and it does talk about violent killing. But it's also about an incredibly important campaign by some remarkable people. So we really hope that if you can, you'll stick with it. If you murder someone in this country, you get a life sentence. But what does a life sentence actually mean? Well... Compare the sentencing guidelines in England and Wales for these two cases. In the first, a man stabs another man in the street in a fight between gangs. The starting point for his minimum sentence is 25 years in prison. In the second case, a man stabs his wife to death in a frenzied attack with multiple stab wounds and extraordinary violence And he does it in front of their kids. The minimum sentence for him is just 15 years. A whole 10-year gap. How can that be right? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Kitchen Knife Killers... Why are some of Britain's most brutal murderers getting such short prison sentences? My name's Lucy Bannerman and I'm a news reporter and feature writer for The Times. Lucy, how did you start looking into this story? Well, I've been a news reporter for 20 years and it strikes me that just too often women's pain is regarded as somehow inevitable, whether it's this country's still birth rate, which is appalling, or the failure to properly diagnose conditions like endometriosis. Mm. There's often this sort of societal shrug when it comes to women's pain as if to say, well, that's life. And nowhere is that more evident than at its most extreme end when you look at the number of women who are murdered. 
And even that statistic in England and Wales every week, um, you know, that two or three women are killed by their current or former partner, you know, that statistic has become so commonly used that even now that's kind of lost its shock value. Uh, and listeners may remember that after the murders of Biba Henry and Nicole Smallman in London in 2020, and then Sarah Everard's murder and Sabina Ness's murder in London in the following year, not long after that, there was another woman, Julia James, 53-year-old woman who was murdered in Kent. And the language that police used at that time really struck me because mm. in an attempt to reassure the public after all these high-profile cases, the police said that this was an isolated incident. And in fact, Julia James was one of three women killed by blunt force trauma that single week and uh -huh. all of the three cases had been described by police as isolated incidents, when that's anything but isolated. Mm. It comes back to that single loaded word, domestic, doesn't it? Which yeah. is often prefixed by the word just. It's just a domestic. And it feels like nobody's standing back and joining up the dots and looking at just how serious a problem this is across the country. Exactly. And while looking at all of that, you found one particular issue, one particular fact that really shocked you? Yes. You wouldn't think necessarily that where someone was murdered should be so important, whether it's inside or outside. Mm. And yet, as we've come to discover, it can matter significantly. So I think many people will be shocked, as I was, to learn that if you stab someone to death outside with a weapon you've taken to the scene, you will have a minimum life sentence of 25 years in prison. However, if you kill someone inside the home with a weapon that's already there, for example, a kitchen knife, your minimum term begins at 15 years. I Why? Mean, that's bonkers. How does that make sense? The difference is because he used a weapon that was already there. He didn't take the weapon outside to the scene with intent. But how, how does that disparity come about? I mean, what, what on earth is going on? Actually, it's the unintended consequence of a previous successful campaign. So if someone commits murder, they must get a life sentence in mm. England and Wales. But the minimum term you must serve before you become eligible for parole, that varies. So if you kill someone with a gun, for example, you get 30 years. That's the starting right. point. And then judges can add or subtract months and years, depending on the ag aggravating or mitigating factors. And most other murders used to start at 15 years. But that changed thanks to the successful campaign by the family of Ben Kinsella, the schoolboy and brother of the actress Brooke Kinsella, who listeners may remember was stabbed to death in 2008. And their campaign managed to win tougher sentences for killers who carry a knife to the murder scene. Mm. And that was an attempt. And it, it was regarded as a victory because that was a way of, of clamping down on knife crime. And it was an attempt to bring in tougher sentences mm. for those kind of crimes. But it had an unintended consequence because that change, it forgot to take into account that most female victims of murder are killed in the home. 70% of murders of women, the woman is killed inside rather than outside, usually by a former or current partner or member of her family and typically with a weapon that's already there, often a kitchen knife. Yeah, I mean, they don't have to go out or bring a knife to the situation. There's already one there. Exactly. But does that make it any less bad? You do sort of end up then with a disparity in terms of justice because, you know, as you say, if 70% of murders of women are happening inside, it just means that 
if you murder a woman, you're more likely to get a shorter sentence. You've ended up accidentally with what feels like quite a sexist law. Absolutely. And of course, that wasn't, it didn't seem to be the intention. But, you know, I've spoken to one legal expert who described this as the greatest remaining sore in the legal system in England and Wales. And it it wouldn't necessarily take a lot of work to change it. It could just mean like a tweak to the existing legislation. But as the expert told me, it all depends on the political will to get those tweaks done and move them through Parliament and, and change the law. That seems to be the issue. And whether in an election year, whether that's possible. And there are women at the heart of this who have been fighting for years now, trying to bring this to the attention of politicians again and again and again. Yes, these mothers have done so much to try and get this changed. Right. We're at the kitchen table. <laughs> you've got... You've got a much highlighted little wadge of papers in front of you. Talk me through what that is. Well, it's the sentencing consultation that will close on the 4th of March. And I suppose I'm just going through it all with a fine-tooth comb and reminding myself of the history and why it came about. My name is Carol Gould and my dearest daughter Ellie was murdered at the age of 17. Tell me about Ellie. Ellie was delightful. She was very kind and caring. She adored animals from a very young age. She used to always want to go to farms at the weekends to hold chicks and feed lambs. And then she went onto horses and um, grew a passion for horse riding. And you know, I have really happy memories of us both doing that. Um, but Ellie was a natural and she progressed to become a very proficient horsewoman, actually. But that was our lives. You know, every weekend we were out with the horses. Um, I'm so glad, actually, now that we, we had that time together. We were very close. She loved horses and saw that as part of where her life was going to. What, what, what were her plans? Well, she was studying A-levels. She was doing history and psychology and sociology, but she did have an interest in criminology. She was considering a career in the police force because she wanted to solve crimes. And she wondered with her equestrian skills if she could join the mounted police. It was just a, a, a loose conversation we had one evening where she said, I know, I know what I could do. I could be, I could go into the mounted police and then I could pursue my interest in criminology and my love for horses at the same time. She ironically, um, as part of her A-level studies, she had completed a piece of work on should child murderers be punished? And she got the results for that work on the Monday. And on the Friday, she was murdered herself. Um, and, you know, it's it's quite surreal, really, that that was her interest and her belief that justice should be served and I suppose that's what makes me feel like I have to be her voice. You've got pictures here is yeah, this? that's her 
there, pictures of her show jumping on a horse and cross-country riding. Ever petrifying for us as parents um, when she used to go competing at cross-country events and fly past us, you know, over these big wooden fences. Um, she looks like she's in her element. Oh, she she was. She she was. She was. She loved it. She was so brave. I was petrified. I'd have my eyes shut watching. <laughs> I'm so glad she, you know, had a lovely childhood. So Ellie was in the sixth form. She was halfway through her A-levels and she started dating a fellow student, Thomas Griffiths, who was also in the sixth form. It seemed normal to start with. She, he was her first boyfriend. She was quite excited about it, you know. She felt like she was a bit like her friends. They'd all got boyfriends and, and now she felt she was the same as them. It started off quite normal where he would come to our house after school, sometimes have dinner with us, and she would go back to his house. Probably about four or five weeks in, he started to become controlling over her. She wanted to meet up with other girlfriends after school sometimes. And there was one occasion where she was meeting a girlfriend of hers in a coffee shop. And as she was walking out of school, he started to say to her, where are you going? What are you doing? And she told him. And he said, no, you're supposed to be coming back to my house. And she said, no, I'm not. I've arranged to go and see my friend. And he said, well, my mum has got food in specially for you because you're coming. So this coercive controlling behaviour was starting to creep in. A lot of the communication was done on Snapchat. In the courts, they said that couldn't be retrieved. So for all we know, the controlling behaviour could have been a lot more serious than we'll ever know. She did disclose to me in the latter few weeks that he was acting strange. He didn't like it because she wanted to focus on her studies after school and didn't want to see him after school for a couple of weeks. And he made her feel guilty about that and kept saying, does it not feel make you feel bad that we're not seeing each other? And she lost her patience with him and said, I don't understand what your problem is. We see each other in school. What is your problem? And now we know more about coercive control. We've been told that that's called educational sabotage. The weekend before, he came to our house on the Sunday and he had a letter for me. And it was a letter asking me if he could do work experience in our business. And once again, this was all part of his controlling behaviour because he knew that she was probably due to end the relationship and it was all about that control where you can't end the relationship because I'm doing work experience with your mum in a few weeks' time. It's been five years and, you know, God, I'm sorry to even ask. Feel free to say as much or as little as you like, but tell me what happened. Well, um, she'd been in this relationship with Griffiths. It had only been three months she just had enough of him. So that evening, that Thursday evening, she disclosed to me how we'd been that week. And I said to her, Ellie, he sounds like he's become absolutely obsessed with you. And she said, I know, mum. And I said, what are you going to do? I said, you do not want to go out with somebody like that. And she said, I know, mum, don't worry, I'll, I'll fix it. And I said to her, well, what are you going to do? And she was going, mum, it's fine, I'll fix it. She didn't appear to be in fear of her life. 
it, you know, they'd been boyfriend and girlfriend literally three months at the age of 17. I just thought he might be a bit put out when she ended the relationship, but by the following week, he would have got over it. But the next day, she stayed at home in the morning because she didn't have any lessons and she decided she could make better use of her time revising at home rather than being distracted at school. He knew she was home alone, so he allowed his mother to drop him off at school like she did. He didn't go into school. He waited for her to drive away and then he headed, He caught the bus back to where he lives. He went home to his house. He went to change his clothes. As he was changing his clothes, his mother came home, so he hid in the wardrobe. He then waited until she left and then he drove illegally to our house, obviously because he was running out of time because he knew she was going into school about 12 o'clock. And then when he... Knocked at the door, he had his hood up, which obviously he wanted to disguise identity, didn't he? He didn't want anyone to see who it was knocking at the door. And when he came in, he carried out the most heinous attack on her. He strangled her. She fought back desperately, trying to get him off, scratching his face. But he wouldn't stop. He watched her struggle to breathe. He watched her fall to the floor, unconscious. And if that wasn't enough... He then picked up a knife and he stabbed her 13 times in the neck. And if that wasn't enough then, he just focused on himself and not at one point did he stop and try and get help. He took the handle of the knife and he washed his DNA off of it. He put it back in her hand and he reinserted it into one of the wounds on her neck to make it look like suicide. And then he washed his shoes in the sink to get the blood off them and then he picked up some of the cloths that he tried to wipe up some of the blood with and then he just stepped over her body and walked out of our house as if nothing had happened and completely focused on himself hiding the evidence and setting a false trail of whatsapp messages to the friendship group saying has anyone seen ellie i don't know if you know but we've split up and i've got some scratches on my face where i've been self-harming because i've been a bit depressed he went back to his home um, and a neighbor saw him and asked him what the scratches were and felt sorry for him because he said he felt a bit low and she offered to drive him into school to speak to the pastoral lady so she drove him into school and he sat in front of the pastoral lady and just told a pack of lies. Even when he was sat in front of her, he sent a message to Ellie to ask her where she was and was she okay. But I think one of the absolute chilling things that he did is when he left her dead on our kitchen floor, he used her fingerprint to open up her phone to send a message to her friend to stop her coming to pick her up. He is evil. And the punishment he got for that was 12 and a half years in prison. That's his minimum term. So he can apply for parole after 12 and a half years and he could be out by the time he's 30. A dangerous individual like that. I am so sorry to take you back to all of that. I know how hard that is. At the time... You know, not only did you have the shock of your daughter being murdered, but you then have this whole trial process. Yeah. Tell me what you remember of it. There was one burning question I had when we met the barrister, which was, how long will he get? 
And at that point, we understood that he was probably going to plead guilty, despite the fact that he'd lied and lied and lied to the police. And the only reason he pleaded guilty was because his parents and his barrister had gone into prison and had obviously told him that it was his best option. The evidence was overwhelming against him and it would be in his best interest to plead guilty so that he could get time off of his prison sentence. It was nothing to do with any genuine remorse on his account. It was just what was best for him. And because of that, we were told that his sentence would be about 12 and a half years. So we knew even before the sentencing what it was likely to be because it's set into law in Schedule 21 what the the sentencing is. That's the sentencing guidelines. The sentencing guidelines. How did it feel when you heard that in the courtroom? You heard that it would be 12 and a half years. Just broken. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that that's all Ellie's life was worth. 12 and a half years. And, that, and how could it be right that he could be out by the time he's 30 to live his life, have a family? And he had robbed her of 70 odd years plus and us, destroyed us, destroyed us as a family. And none of that is taken into account with the sentencing. When they talked about the sentencing, they said, because you're a youth, we have to start at 12 years. And then the judge says, and then I have to consider aggravating factors. And he listed six serious aggravating factors that were so painful for us to have to listen to. Things like how much Ellie suffered in her final moments, how particularly grave her injuries were, the fact that she was vulnerable in her own home. The fact that he used a knife and stabbed her multiple times. Terrible things we had to listen to. And at the end of that, he said, and for those six aggravating factors, I'm going to add five years. Five years, we thought. That's not even a year per aggravating factor for all the suffering that Ellie went through. And then he said, and in mitigation, I have to take into account your remorse. Well, there was no remorse in his letter. In his letter that was read out in court, it said, One day, I hope I can explain myself. Well, to me, that's not remorse. If you were genuinely remorseful, you would hold your hands up and say, I'm so sorry for what I did. I realised I did it because I was jealous and I felt that if I couldn't have her, then nobody else could have her. The judge also said that he'd received references, character references from friends and family, including his grandparents. Well, I don't think crapped reference from your grandma can count and he also took into account the fact that he'd never been in trouble with the police before well again I think that's pretty irrelevant when you've just committed murder so for those very poor weak mitigating factors the judge then took three years off completely disproportionate to the five years that he'd added for the most serious aggravating factors. So that just brought the sentence back down to the 12 years, which is just a joke of a justice system, absolute mockery of it. So in that moment, you haven't got the justice that you needed from this process. What are the barristers saying to you? The barrister was really cold, our barrister. I always remember him saying to me, I don't know why you're crying, Carol. I told you what the sentence would be. And barristers, 
like myself and judges, have thought long and hard about sentencing for murder, and we believe we have it right. And then off he went, his cloak behind him. And I can remember thinking to myself, one day I'm going to prove you wrong. Coming up, the campaign to level the playing field. We'll have more in just a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. What did you do next? Because, you know, in your position, I think most people would just feel utterly broken. Well, in the first instance, I couldn't understand why a young man being just five months off of 18 was treated the same way as a 10-year-old. And I challenged the MOJ. I wrote to Sir Robert Buckland. I wrote to my MP. And I banged the drum about it because you can't treat a 10-year-old the same as somebody a day off their 18th birthday. And they recognised it. And we then managed to get Ellie's Law through where there's now a sliding scale. So the closer you get to 18, you're treated more like an adult. That's amazing. So you wrote to the Ministry of Justice and you actually managed to shift the law. We did. So how does it work now? So now it's 90%. So somebody like Griffiths now would have a starting point of 14 years when it comes to sentencing. So it actually only adds two years. So what we're really looking for now is is to close this 10-year disparity between whether you take a knife out into the street and stab somebody or use a knife in the home. Most people would would give up and they'd be delighted to have made one law change, but you've, you've taken on the campaign. Well, it's not me alone. I joined forces with another 
mother, bereaved mother, um, Julie Devy, whose dear daughter Poppy was murdered in very similar circumstances. Only her perpetrator was 24 years old. And so he had an adult sentence passed to him, but that was just under 16 years. We've since recently joined up with another bereaved mother, Elaine Newbra, and her daughter was killed in the most horrific circumstances once again. And he received a woefully inadequate sentence of 23 years. What we've got to remember is that a quarter of homicides are domestic homicides. And in the majority of those homicides, it's women who are killed. So we've gone back to the Ministry of Justice and we've challenged them on this 10-year disparity and told them that it's immoral to value women's lives so leniently. And when you talk about rehabilitation and the wider harm, it's surely much easier to rehabilitate that youth that stabbed somebody once in the park than it is somebody who's capable of overkill. And this is something that we've learned about domestic homicides. Many of them involve overkill. Just explain what that is. It's more force than is needed to, to kill. And they are horrific. Multiple stab wounds, dismembering bodies. It takes one very sick, evil person to do that. If you give these violent men very short sentences and then let them out, many of them reoffend. We know families where men have had a history of violence and been in prison and they've come out, services have failed to protect them and they've killed again. If they were just locked up for a very long time, surely this would stop this happening. All we ask is for parity and fairness. All we ask is that these murders are treated with the same seriousness as a murder that happens in the street. There is an opportunity for change. Alex Chalk, the Justice Secretary, has launched a public consultation which is due to come to an end at the beginning of next month on March the 4th. And that will reconsider the starting points for murder sentences in all knife cases. And legally, I'm told by legal experts, it could be done relatively simply by just tweaking the legislation around sentencing. And, you know, think how much we... Our understanding of domestic violence has changed over the last 20 years. Mm. I spoke to one legal expert who told me that, you know, when they first began their legal career, a husband could not rape his wife in law. It was still impossible to charge a man for rape if he was married to her. And so in this legal expert's own daughter's lifetime, that has changed so much to the point that their daughter can't believe that once was the case. Mm. So it's important to think, you know, change is possible. It's part of the problem and part of the reason it's taking so long that we've had so many changes of ministers and governments. Has that been part of the reason we're not just getting things that should happen very quickly aren't being done. It seems to be, certainly. When speaking to Carol Gould, that's what she will tell you. She and the other campaigners have had multiple meetings with various different ministers and have done for years. Yeah, we've told our stories time and time again to different ministers. It doesn't help the fact that there's a constant revolving door 
of ministers. Just as we gain traction with one, there's a reshuffle or a change, and we have to start again with the next. But we're now we have forced this to a public consultation, and um, the date closes on the 4th of March. And if anybody's listening to this, please would you go on to the Ministry of Justice and find the link and back our campaign for parity, for, for, for the same justice for women as well as men, you know, for the to be a 25-year starting point when it comes to sentencing, regardless of whether it's happened out in the street or in the home, and for hands to be recognised as a weapon too. This is very much gendered violence, men using their strength over women. They're able to strangle them, and at the moment hands are not seen as weapons, and they should be. Do you have any sense of a timeline of how soon you can hope for any kind of change? Not really, no, because my biggest fear is this consultation will close on the 4th of March and then a general election will be announced and then that's it. It will be kicked into the long grass for a good year or so before any new government picks it up again. If there is an election, do you know if there is support for this on both sides of the House? We've certainly met some key people from the Labour Party who have said that they will support us going forward with it. But this shouldn't be a party political issue. This should be about what is right for women in this country. For you personally, what would it mean if this campaign finally got a result? I think we'd have a sense of peace. I think we could just sit back then and think... That's it, that's job done. We, we've done our bit in memory of our dear girls. Ellie, as you say, was obsessed with criminal justice. This was something that she felt passionately about. How do you think she'd feel what you're doing now? I think she'd be incredibly proud, incredibly proud of what we're trying to achieve. Um, but at the same time, probably be thinking, but mum, don't make yourself ill over it. There comes a point where you do have to stop. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Carol Gould, mother of Ellie Gould, and The Times reporter, Lucy Bannerman. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Mao Lissetto. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. <laughs>